0: We continue our series on Jesus' high priestly prayer. Today is week two, and this is actually part of a year-long emphasis that we have on prayer. Today we're going to have, I'm going to have three key thoughts that we're going to look at as we go through our verses. But as we begin, I want to start by looking at last week, just a few notes to kind of get us in sync of what's been happening. As we look at the first part, last week we looked at the first part of Jesus' prayer. So there we see that Jesus began by saying, the hour has come. Jesus was going to glorify God through his death, and that death was actually going to occur the next day. We see that God gave Jesus authority to give eternal life to people. and Jesus said eternal life is a relationship with God and with Jesus. It is to know them, not just to know about them, but to know them. Jesus said that he accomplished all the work that God had given him. And here he's referring to his life, his teaching, his miracles, and he's speaking of the cross and the resurrection as completed fact. They were going to occur in the next few days. He's talking about them as if they're already done. And then he says that he wants to be in heaven with God the Father again. Well, that takes us to today's verses, John 17, verses 6 to 12, where we look at the next part of Jesus' prayer. So remain seated, and let's read together from the screen, John 17, verses 6 to 12. Let's read. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus begins verse 6 by saying, I have manifested your name. And by this, Jesus means that he has showed people who God is. In Romans 1 we see that creation, that is, nature itself, reveals something about God. It reveals his power, his existence, and a little bit about his nature, so that as it says, no one is without excuse. That is, you look at other scripture, God says, everyone is going to stand before God one day to be judged, and at that judgment, no one will be honestly be able to say, I had no clue that there was a God. We won't be able to say that. So Romans says nature shows us a little bit about God. And now Jesus has come and he shows us so much more. He shows us God's character and his nature. And we see this same thought in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now there's a lot of things in here. Let me just touch on a couple of them. The writer says, God spoke to his people in the past. Thinking of the Old Testament times, he said he spoke through the prophets, and God did. God spoke to the nation of Israel and to other nations as well through his prophets. But now, the writer says, God is speaking again in a different way. He's speaking through his son. And he says his son is the exact imprint of God's nature. There's one place where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Look, guys, if you've seen me, you have seen God the Father. To see Jesus, to hear him, is to hear God. To see what Jesus does is to see what God does. And Jesus makes it clear that's why he came. To speak the words that God gave him, to do the things that God gave him to do. But the other thing that you see in Jesus is that Jesus shows us God in a way that we can relate to. We call that in the church revelation. When you see that word revelation, think of the word reveal. Some of you watch some of these HGTV shows where they have the big reveal. Okay, well, Jesus is the big reveal for God where you get to see him, his character. This also reminds me that people also have wrong views of God. Some people think of God as almost a senile, doddering old grandfather who just smiles and pats everybody on the head. Other people see God totally differently, as angry always with fire and brimstone. Some people see God as uninvolved, and there have been plenty of people who have said, if God ever existed, he's dead. Now, Christians do not naturally have a full right understanding of God because nobody naturally has that Christians grow in a right understanding of who God is and that happens because God reveals himself in the Bible through Jesus and through the work of the spirit well the next part of the verse leads us to a very humbling thought there's just a little clue in the verse so let me explain Jesus prays in verse 6 I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Jesus is referring to the people that God chooses and gives to Jesus. Other parts of the New Testament explain more fully the fact that God chooses us, we don't choose him. Leads to the first key thought. and Actually, I apologize, it's the only one I have on a slide. Here's the first key thought. There is nothing special about any of the people that God chooses. We just finished a sermon series on Noah, and Dan and I both made the point there was nothing special about Noah that caused God to choose him. Old Testament hero Abraham, there was nothing special about him. Jacob, it becomes even clearer that there's nothing special about a person. The nation of Israel, well, let's bring it home. You and me. There's nothing special about us. And verses in both Old Testament and New Testament confirm this. As you see on the slide, Romans 3, verses 10 and 11. None is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. The word righteous means live rightly. No one lives rightly before God. No one understands. We do not naturally understand God's ways. He tells us in Isaiah, his thoughts... Are higher than ours, his ways are higher than ours. If you think of the difference between a little toddler who's about two, who can talk and very clearly tell you no and tell you what they want, and an adult, you can't have an adult conversation with a two year old. It does not work. Magnify that a few million times, and you've got us trying to talk to God, understand who God is. And then no one seeks for God. We don't go looking. I think. Jesse was the the one that said that this morning. We don't go looking for the one true God. Actually, our natural response is to avoid Him. And then Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all disobey God, and we disobey Him regularly. And then Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. And this is God speaking to the nation of Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. So in verse 6, people of Israel sound so special. He says, you're holy to God. He chose you. You are his treasured possession. He chose you out of all the people on the earth. And then verse 7 bursts that bubble. He says, I didn't choose you because you were the most in number. Now, don't get too literal here. That's actually like a pointer to other things that God says or that you see in scripture. For example, God didn't choose the nation of Israel because they were more loving. He certainly didn't choose them because they were more obedient or even because they were more religious. There wasn't anything good in them, okay? And what it shows is God's great love and mercy in choosing anyone. So not only is there nothing good in the Bible people, that. Noah, Abraham, the people of Israel, to commend them to God. There's nothing good in you and me to to commend us to God. And that hits us right in the pride. And it's one of the reasons why the good news of the gospel is seen as offensive. Because who wants to be told that there's nothing good in them? Actually, that thought that there's nothing good in us is something that a Christian kind of slowly embraces You have a piece of it when you come to God because you realize, God, I need you. I am desperate. I I cannot fix. I said this to God. I can't fix my life. But you can. But did I understand how broken I was? Not just a little bit. Just a little bit. And that's why God having mercy and God choosing anyone is so amazing. Well, Jesus continues his prayer. He says about those that God gave him, those that he chose. They kept your word. Now, the Bible is clear, makes it clear that Jesus' disciples did not keep Jesus' word on their own, and we can't either. The only way that we can keep his word is because God works in people through his spirit and his word. And so we obey, but again, we recognize not perfectly. Well, this takes me to key thought number two. Again, I apologize, I don't have a slide, so listen carefully. In the verses, in particular in verse 6 and then in verse 9, that we'll, uh, in, in our verses, Jesus makes a distinction between two groups, between his followers and the rest of mankind. That is, Jesus makes a distinction between the people that God chooses, and we know from Scripture that only we only follow God because God chooses to have mercy on us, and then the rest of mankind who, according to Romans 1, are not just, not just without excuse, but also having known that there is a God, reject the knowledge of God and reject God. And so just to be clear, that's the natural condition for all of us. Left to ourselves, we're going to reject God. And so God even says in Colossians, what does he do? He comes in and snatches us out of that group and moves us and changes us and works in us. Verse 7, Jesus says, Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. In other words, now Jesus' followers understand something. They don't understand perfectly, but they understand something about the connection between God the Father and Jesus, His Son. Jesus says over and over again, He came to earth because God sent Him. Jesus was on earth under God's authority to do what God directed him to do. Now, by the way, all of us are as because we're part of God's creation, are under God's authority. And that's why sometimes in the church you may hear our rebellion against God called cosmic rebellion. It's not a small rebellion, it's a big rebellion because we're rebelling against the God of the universe. So Jesus was not only under God's authority, but Jesus was on God's mission. And part of that mission we see in verse 8. Jesus says that he gave his followers the words that God gave him to speak. Now at one point, many people didn't like what Jesus was saying, and then they left in crowds. Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, Are you going to leave also? And Peter, being the natural spokesman, is in the first one who's going to speak up, spoke for them and said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Now, a more complete answer would be, Jesus, not only do you have the words of life, but you know what? There's a lot of things you say we don't understand either. There's a sense in which Jesus' words in the Bible have the same power that God's word had in Genesis 1 when he spoke and created everything. God's word through his spirit still brings life to us. When a person comes, becomes a Christian, and also during the life of a Christian, God strengthens us with his word. But then Jesus also said that his followers received his words as truth. Now, you notice I've said this a number of times, you and I don't naturally listen to God, we don't naturally acknowledge God, we we also don't naturally see God's word as truth. God's Spirit has to work in us for us to see it as truth. That is why many hundreds and thousands and millions of people that have heard the Word of God have just let it run off their back because that's what we naturally do. And today's culture doesn't make, it actually makes it harder for us to talk about truth because we're told from our culture, one, all truth is relative, and two, there is no absolute truth. Both of those statements are nonsensical, which means they make no sense when you stop and think about it. The first one all truth is relative. You can have your truth, and I can have my truth, and your truth does not have to agree with my truth. Two conflicting statements cannot be true at the same time. Let's take an example. Some people say that God is alive, Christians say that. Other people say God is dead. God cannot be both alive and dead at the same time. It just cannot be. What that means is truth is not relative. Secondly, we're told there are no absolute truths. The statement that there are no absolute truths is itself an absolute statement, which means it is self-contradictory. It doesn't hold. There is absolute truth. There is absolute truth that applies to all of us, which is why the Bible critiques every culture and every person. Because this is God's word, the word of the God who created us. He speaks to us. So Jesus says his followers received his words as truth. Jesus goes on to say that his followers have come to know that Jesus came from God and that God sent Jesus. Now, look at the New Testament. There were lots of people in Jesus' day who did not believe that. Did not believe that Jesus was sent by God. And there are plenty of people today who don't believe that. But think about what it means. If Jesus was sent by God, and he was, then his life and his teaching cannot be ignored. Jesus can't just be a good teacher. He cannot be just a good moral example. His claims won't let you do that and be honest. Our men's Bible study is going through the book of John and going at the pace of two or three weeks per chapter. And at that pace, when you look and you stop and you think, God, Jesus makes a lot of claims, a lot of claims in different ways, including that he is God himself. And so Jesus is either God in the flesh and all he says is true, or he's crazy. It's the first one. He's God himself. Well, what this means is that you, if you and I receive God's word as truth, we should not only believe it, and oftentimes we just try to stop right there, but we should also live according to it. We should believe what Jesus says, but then also live according to it. And because of the power of God's word, you and I should be speaking God's word to other people with our lives, how we live, and then secondly with our words in a way that people can relate to. And I say in a way that people can relate to because it is too easy to misuse the Bible or to use it as a club. And I know that this happens in personal conversations it's even easier to happen online and too often Christians can have the attitude look as we're discussing I see that you have a different opinion than I do well let me just tell you you are wrong I am right and I am very glad to tell you that you are wrong and that I am right do you like getting beat on we don't like it so we shouldn't be beating on others verse 9 Jesus says he, he prays for God's chosen people Do you realize how much you and I need his prayer? We do. And he prays for his followers, we see in these verses and later, both for the disciples that are with him and for all the others that will be adopted by God later to be Christians, including you and me. And Jesus is still interceding for us today, which means that you and I are never alone and we are never without hope. But... Think about this. It's not just enough to say that Jesus prays for us. Jesus' prayer isn't for our comfort. Now, he does give us plenty of comfort, but his prayer isn't focused on our comfort. Jesus' goal is for us to become like him and for us to work for his purposes in other people's lives. Just as Jesus was here on earth on God's mission, he gives us a commission. That is, he gives us a mission us to work for his purposes with other people. And then verse 10, Jesus says this, all the people that belong to Jesus also belong to God and the other way around. You realize what he's doing here. He says, all I have is yours. You and I can say that. God, everything I have is yours, it comes from you. But then Jesus turns it around. He says, God, everything you have is mine. You see what he's doing? Jesus is, equates himself with God the Father. This is one of the places where Jesus makes a really big claim. Everything God has, everything he has is God's, everything God has is his. And then he says that, ta- speaking of the chosen people and, and speaking of us, he says, Jesus is glorified in us. How? In Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6, we read this. He, referring to God. God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, this is a typical Paul sentence. It's long, and it's got lots of pieces, and he stacks one part on top of another. He says, God predestined us, that is, he chose us for adoption through Jesus He's able to adopt us because of what Jesus has done. And look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. There's a sense in which here in in Ephesians 1, Christians are like trophies. And I just have this picture in my mind that in heaven, at some point, Jesus is going to, at various times, will start pointing to people. Do you see him? Do you see her? Do you see them over there? Do you see that group over there? Do you see them over there? I chose them, I loved them, I rescued them. They didn't deserve any of the good that I gave them, but I chose them, I loved them, and here they are, and he points to us like trophies, and everybody else is praising God for his goodness to those people and to all of us. Paul himself speaks of himself as a trophy of God, He says, look, if God can save me, he can save anybody. Now, you do realize that he's not complimenting himself there? He's saying, if, if, if God's salvation is so great and big that he can actually take a person like me, then he can rescue anybody, which means that there isn't anybody so bad that they can't be rescued by God. And then verse 11, Jesus says... I am no longer in the world. Jesus speaks of the cross and the resurrection, which is just still future for him, as completed fact. Jesus will leave, and he'll send his Holy Spirit, and so God leaves his children, Christians, in the world. And if Christians are honest, there are times when they're not happy about being left in the world, because the world is broken and messed up, and so are we. So this takes me to keep thought number three. Why does God keep Christians on earth? Because using Christians, remember we're very flawed, using very flawed Christians is part of God's plan for claiming a people for himself. In Matthew, Jesus talks about his followers as salt and light. Salt doesn't do any good in the shaker. It has to be on the food. Light doesn't do any good if you've covered it. It has to be there where the people are. God has chosen to use Christians that are very much in the process of spiritual growth, very flawed, to accomplish his purposes. That's why he keeps us here. And also to grow us and to change us. So you and I are in big, big trouble when you and I think that we have things together or that we are better than others. So Jesus, in saying that he's leaving, since he's returning to God the Father, he makes a request of God and he says, Father, would you keep them in your name? And here this word keep means to guard. Would you guard them, these people? Would you put them under your care, physically? and spiritually and often when we think about God guarding us we say oh yes because there's so much evil out there well I don't know about you if the teacher still does that anymore but did in my class when I was in school stomp the foot this is important you and I need God's protection not only from the big bad world out there but we also need protection from ourselves and our own selfish nature what the Bible calls the flesh Because it's important, I'm going to say it again. You and I need protection, not only from the big bad world out there, but we also need protection from ourselves and our own selfish nature. If you're catching what I'm saying, what I'm saying today is not good for our ego. But it's true. Well, Jesus goes on to say, keep them that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is speaking of unity a special kind of unity in the Christian church. And he gives a standard, a picture of it. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit are in perfect unity. Each one of them delights in giving honor to the others. Well, look at how God made his church. He made his church of people of all kinds of backgrounds. And we don't naturally get along with each other. In fact, Jesus said, this is one of the ways that other people outside the church will know that something different is going on in the church when you love each other with a godly love, when there is unity, when people can see there wouldn't naturally be any there. And so God builds in Christians unity of love and of purpose, of holiness and truth. And then in verse 12, Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of perdition, or destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So not only did, is Jesus asking God to guard his followers, but Jesus guarded his followers. But then he mentions the one, Judas Iscariot. He's the son of destruction. Judas was not an oops on Jesus' part. Jesus didn't say, oh well, 11 out of 12 is not bad. No. Judas freely chose to betray Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders. And Jesus' betrayal was part of God's plan for our rescue. It was not a mistake. Jesus guarded his followers. Well, let me finish by talking a little bit more about God keeping us. Keeping means guarding, and Christians are guarded by God. And what this means is that nothing that happens to a Christian happens that isn't a part of God's plan. Sometimes I get lost in the double negatives, so let's turn it around to the positive. Everything that happens to Christians is a part of God's plan. Everything that happens. But there's more to God keeping us. Christians are given God's spirit. Christians are given wisdom from God to replace our foolishness. Christians are given power from God to replace our weakness. Christians are given love from God to replace our selfishness. Christians are forgiven by God to cover our rebellion. Christians are given life with God that begins now and will continue into eternity. And Christians are promised that eternity with God will be unhindered by sin, death, or pain. Our God is an awesome God. He's called us here. He's adopted us. If you're here today and you're a Christian, he's adopted you and he's given you a purpose. Not only to love him and to respond to his love to you, but then to work and to live and wherever he's placed you. To be his representative, his ambassador. It's another New Testament word that God gives us. He puts us on his mission to rescue other people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a great and awesome God. We thank you for choosing to love us and to rescue us and adopt us and to give us your spirit and give us wisdom and power and love and forgiveness. Over and over and over again, you give us these things because we need them. We need you. And you are always with us. Lord, we pray that you would work in us, that we would delight in you. You tell us you delight in us. Lord, help us to delight in you and your plans for us. And then, Lord, give us your heart. You have a heart. You came chasing after us. We sang that song. Well, would you use us to chase after others, to love them, to serve them, to speak humbly of how you've rescued us and loved us, and they can have the hope that they can be loved and rescued as well. Lord, we thank you for this, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond with a song. Please stand.